happened first and what does it mean? And that kind of um, informs the rest of your study. So the first place that wine was mentioned in the Bible was where? Rob. Anybody know? No, that's a good guess. Anybody? It was actually in Genesis. I'll give you a hint. Anybody? Anybody? Noah. That's it. That's exactly it. Good for you, Bob. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I did not set you up. So what happened was, um, in the first place in the Bible that wine is ever mentioned is in Genesis. It's with Noah. He, um, you know, the flood was over, and they had landed, and he decided to um, grow a vineyard, make wine, and then fall down intoxicated. Um, that's not necessarily a nice depiction of him, but that is the first mention of, of wine in the Bible. The reason I bring this up is because this particular passage that we're studying, which is in the book of John, is about when Jesus turned water into wine. And a lot of people want to, um, they want to think, for whatever reason, that he did not turn water into real wine, that he turned it into grape juice or something like that. So the way to kind of look at that controversy is to say, well, how was wine used in the Bible before this particular entry? And if we look in the Bible, every single place that it's used, it actually means wine that's fermented, literal wine. And if we go back and look at Noah, we can see that he didn't fall down drunk from a bunch of grapes. He actually made wine out of the grapes, and he was intoxicated and fell down. And so we can, we can surmise then that wine really does mean it was fermented. Isn't that interesting? I mean, who would know that, right? But a lot of people kind of hinge a lot of doctrine on that, that, that wine is, you know, that in the Bible it meant grape juice or unfermented wine, or you mixed it with a bunch of water and it was, um, you know, not potent at all. And actually that kind of goes against what a lot of the Bible says. So I'm just going to give you a couple, um, a couple of instances For one thing, wine was a common drink used by the Jews, and it was also used in ritual worship in the temple. You actually had drink offerings to the Lord in the temple. It's in Judges 9.13, we read that wine is that which cheers God and men. And in Psalm 104, it says wine makes the man's heart glad. That sounds like fermented wine to me, doesn't it? I get pretty glad with wine. So I was glad last night, wasn't I, babe? A little bit. It was, um, what was it last night? It was uh, not Maddie Palooza, because that's today. It was a street party before Maddie Palooza. They had all the pastor locked off and yeah. they had all kinds of stuff. Chris and I went down to get a little snick snack and ended up in the street fair having our two drink tickets, didn't we, babe? Until we got something to eat. That was kind of a mistake. But now we know better, right? Um, even the f future fulfillment of the kingdom of God will be characterized by the abundance of wine. There's 247 references to alcohol in the Bible. 40 are negative, 145 are positive, and 62 are neutral. Because let's face it, the Bible does say that we shouldn't be drunk, but filled with the Holy Spirit. So I'm not advocating drunkenness, but what I am trying to say is, let's look at this, um, let's look at it the way it was written, at least try to, um, and see what wine is supposed to represent to us New Testament believers, okay? So let's just come into agreement that this is, um, this is real wine. It's, it's, 
wine that has been fermented. It's delicious. It means something, okay? And I'm going to read, um, I'm going to read this scripture from the Passion Translation. This is John 2. Now on the third day, there was a wedding feast in the Galilean village of Cana, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples were all invited to the banquet, but with so many guests in attendance, they ran out of wine. And when Mary realized that she came to him and asked, they have no wine. Can't you do something about it? Jesus replied, my dear one, don't you understand that if I do this, it won't change anything for you, but it will change everything for me. My hour of unveiling my power has not yet come. Mary then went to the servers and told them, whatever Jesus tells you, make sure that you do it. Now there were six stone water pots standing nearby. They were meant to be used for the Jewish washing rituals. Each one held about 20 gallons or more. Jesus came to the servers and told them, fill the pots with water right up to the very brim. Then he said, now fill your pitchers and take them to the master of ceremonies. And when they poured out their pitcher for the master of ceremonies to sample, the water became wine. When he tasted the water that became wine, the master of ceremonies was impressed, although he didn't know where the wine had come from, but the servers knew. He called the bridegroom over and said to him, every host serves his best wine until first until everyone has had a cup or two. Then he serves the wine of poor quality. But you, my friend, you reserve the most exquisite wine until now. This miracle in Cana was the first of many extraordinary miracles Jesus performed in Galilee. This was a sign revealing his glory, and his disciples believed in him. One of the reasons I wanted to do this, too, is because it was about a party. It was a wedding. And, you know, I love the idea of um, Jesus, you know, partying in the New Testament because it was so radical for people they couldn't handle it, right? They, um, the Pharisees were always criticizing him for eating and drinking with sinners, and he was constantly doing things that befuddled the people of the time. And I love in the Bible, there's just all this eating together. I love to eat together. That's why we do Saturday Night Supper Club. That's why we, we had a um, kind of a girls' night at Lori McLean's, and we had, you know, the beverage that heartens, you know, makes the heart glad, and snick snacks, and we had food, right? And it was a fantastic time. There's something about breaking bread together that brings you close, that, that um, is relational. And the thing that I was just thinking about, even when we were singing that last song, it's so easy to forget that God is relational, that he wants to sit down and break bread and drink wine with us and hear about our day and um, enjoy us so that we can enjoy him. And we kind of forget that he's relational. We forget that he's a God who, who wants to gather all his people together and enjoy them. Because sometimes we get caught up on majesty and glory. I got, when I was growing up and I was thinking about this, I got really messed up on the idea of God's glory. Like, how do we glorify God? What does it mean, God's glory? And for me, because of my background, glory always meant, well, he's so great and he's so good and he's so majestic. But it contributed this faraway kind of um, cathedral kind of God. Does that make sense? You look at a cathedral and like, it's so beautiful, it's so glorious, it's so magnificent, it's so wonderful, but it's not personal. And it's not close, and it's not, um, it's not a daily thing. It's, it's a, something you go and tour and look at and see. Does that make sense? And so I think what's interesting about um, the miracles that we see in the New Testament Every single one of the miracles of the New Testament is to show 
God's heart for us. And it's always to bring a solution to a problem. It's not just to say, it's, it, is to be, it is for him to be glorified in how great he is, but it's always a solution to our problem, if that makes sense. It's not just for the heck of it because he can turn water into wine, so maybe he will. He's doing it as a solution to somebody's problem to show that he's there for them. He's rubbing their back and saying, you're a trooper. I'm here for you. I got the solution for you. You're suffering. I've got the answer for you. That's what I like about the miracles of Jesus. They're always to show the heart of the Father, every single time. Um, so I'm going to look at three things in this particular story. Um, the first one is basically the literary significance of what's going on here. You guys know that there's four Gospels in the Bible. Who, what, what are they? Who can tell me what they are? Luke and John. Okay. So, what, what is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or what kind of Gospels? What does that mean, Bob? <laughs> Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic Gospels. I need someone to get rid of this fly. <clears throat> synoptic Gospels, which basically tell a story, like a chronological story. I know, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Based on one storyline. There are three different authors, authors that have taken one storyline and they have written according to the way they saw it. It'd be kind of like if you saw an accident and, Bob, you saw it one way. Um, you saw the, who the driver was and Janet saw who the, per, the person who got hit was and Juliana saw who the, who the car was. They all represent pieces to the picture, but you saw it in your own different way. Those are the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Okay. John is a different gospel. It's not a synoptic gospel. He writes 90, 100 years later after Jesus has died. And he wants to tell a whole different story. He wants to tell a whole different thing that's going on, different than the synoptic gospels. Um, John doesn't talk about the kingdom of heaven like the first three do. He talks about eternal life. He talks about Jesus more than any of the other Gospels do. Because his whole point is to, is to show that Jesus is a sign and a wonder to something else. In fact, the book of John is sometimes called the book of signs. Did you know that? There are um, seven signs that, that John um, categorizes. Um, and there, the first one is the wedding, of, wedding feast, and the last one is when he raises Lazarus from the dead. Did you guys watch that movie, Signs? You know that movie, Signs? Do you like that movie, Signs? It's such a good movie. It's um, basically, for those of you who don't know, there's a, a man who's lost his faith, basically, because his wife has died. And as he looks back over his life, or the, the, the preceding events, different things have happened that he doesn't understand. Just weird different things have happened. And then there comes a crisis in his life. Ben, you'll like this aliens come down, which is, you know, so realistic, right? So aliens invade the earth, and when he looks back, and he's so angry at God, remember how angry he is at God, and he looks back and he sees how these different events were a sign showing him how to defeat this particular alien attack. And as the signs are revealed, you just go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, and all these pieces 
just start to fill in the puzzle and you realize that God was showing him all along how he was going to handle this particular crisis. Well, this, the book of John is almost the exact same thing. The book of John is he's saying, here's a sign of who Jesus is. Here's another sign of who Jesus is. Here's another sign of who Jesus is. So that when you have troubles, you're going to know how to handle those troubles because we've given you a sign. It's called Jesus. It's a sign and a wonder. He doesn't use the word miracle. He says this is a sign. And I think that's really interesting because we need to remember that miracles are to show us something. There's a purpose for miracles. It's not, yes, it is to bring God glory. But for me, I have to reframe what the word glory means. Because for me, glory is, you know, the hallelujah chorus and stuff like that, and cathedrals. But what if glory meant, I want to reveal my heart to you so that we can love each other better? What if glory meant that? What if being, bringing God glory is saying, God, I glorify you for what you've done in my life and how much you love me and how you're here to rescue me. And that's what John is trying to say is these miracles glorify God in the way that they draw us close to him as he rescues us. And as he, as he gives us what he has in store for us, we then glorify God. We say, oh God, you're so awesome. You're so great. Not because of the cathedral, but because, man, you just saved me from some intense humiliation. Or you took my shame and you turned it into fame. You know, something I couldn't do, you turned my shame into fame because that's what God does. You know, and I think that's such a cool thing that John does because he wants us to know more than any other gospel writer, Jesus loves you. His, his number one theme in this book and in his book, the first John, first, second, and third John at the end of the New Testament, little children love each other the way that Jesus loves you. It is all about love to John. And his number one commitment is, I want you to know how much Jesus loves you. And this is a sign that shows you how much he loves you. So that's the purpose of the book of John, and that's where this story, this miracle, fits in his purpose, okay? So that brings us to, um, that brings us to what is the message of this miracle. This miracle has a message, okay? And I've already kind of told you it's that God can turn our shame into fame. There's a, um, a literary and, and real thing in the Bible called the sudden reversal, We've talked about the sudden reversal. Can you guys give me any examples of the sudden reversal? How, how was that a sudden reversal? Okay, all right. Anybody else know a sudden reversal? A sudden, another sudden reversal is um, Esther in the book of Esther. She and all her people were going to be killed, and then boom, she went to the king. She got favor. Now the king was on her side. That's called a sudden reversal. Or when um, Moses, all the people were going to be killed in Egypt, and Moses brings about, that's a sudden reversal of their destiny. Well, what we've got going on here in the, um, in the uh, wedding is another sudden reversal. 
This is the first picture of John. And the other thing I want you to know, too, this, this particular miracle is not mentioned in any other gospel. It only is mentioned in John. Isn't that interesting? Come up, stand up here and get rid of it for me. <laughs> Maybe if I walk over here. If I walk over here, will it leave me alone? Did it go? Oh, good. So I want you to imagine this. In the um, ancient Near East, weddings lasted seven days. Seven days, okay? It was a really big deal to have a wedding, okay? You, you planned for it, you invited people, and then you had really incredible banquets, all right? At the end of seven days, then the bride was brought to the bridegroom, the, the marriage was consummated, and everyone on their happy way. But it was a, an incredible um, thing to have a wedding. When I was in um, India, I happened to see a wedding. We were um, staying someplace, and we heard all this huge noise, and it went on day and night, day and night. Like, it went on all night long, and then all day, and then all night long, and it was a wedding. They're having this big procession, and they had all these flowers, and it was a really, really big deal. And that's the way it was in the, in the um, Jewish culture. And what happened was they forgot to order enough wine. Okay, so imagine that you have a seven-day banquet, and you ran, not, let's say in our culture, you ran out of food. Remember when we ran out of food? What did we go do? Started digging through our freezer and getting more food out, because we didn't want to not be able to serve people. When you're in a culture of hospitality, you want everyone to have what they're supposed to have. In this particular culture, running out of wine would not only have been embarrassing, humiliating, but it would have brought disgrace on their family. In fact, it might have had legal consequences. They could have been, I don't know, sued for not being able to provide enough wine to everybody. So here's a situation where Mary, for some reason, she's... She knows what's going on. Either it's a family friend or it's um, somebody they know because Jesus is in attendance, some of his disciples, and Mary. So it was probably a close relative that was getting married is what people think. And Mary comes to him and she goes, hey, by the way, they're running out of wine. And what did Jesus say? Yeah. He didn't even say, Mom, you know what, I can't do this. He said, Wom in other translations, he said, woman, what is this to me? What do I care? It's an idiom in the Aramaic. It means this has nothing to do with you or me. Why are you, why are you telling me about it? Some scholars believe that the reason he addressed her as woman is because he was setting straight their relationship. But up until that time, this is his first miracle. Up until that time, he was submitted to his parents. But at the time of his miracle, now he was God, and she was no longer in authority over him. And so a lot of scholars believe the reason he addressed her as woman is to say, you can't tell me what to do. Not in a mean way, but this, you're, I'm not under your authority anymore. But what I like is she didn't take offense by that. She just told the worker, she said, just do whatever they tell you to do. Just, you know, she did not, she was not offended at that. But I thought that was kind of interesting that he said, woman, this is not my time. The thing is, um, God is, is always in the business of taking our shame and turning it into our fame. A couple other things he, um, that are interesting about this particular story 
is that he told the um, he told the servants fill up those ritual washing stone pots with water. Now, what were the ritual stone pots? Do you guys know? Mm-hmm. What, what did you use them for? So, yes. So in the um, Jewish culture, you could be ritually unclean, so you had to constantly clean yourself. There were 600 Jewish regulations for um, making yourself pure before the Lord. 600. These six pots were what the people used to wash their feet, wash their hands, wash maybe the rest of their body before they would eat or touch anything or do anything. They represent the old Jewish tradition. They represent the law, and the number six represents the number of man. Interesting, right? So Jesus takes these pots, these stone pots, that are used for ritual uncleanliness. They represent the Jewish tradition. He says, I'm going to use what's old, what has brought you bondage, and I'm going to bring new wine out of that. So what he does is he tells the people, go fill these up. They can't move them because they're too heavy, okay? 20 to 30 gallons a pot. They have to fill them up, fill them up, fill them up. Then, once they're filled to the brim, dip out the water and bring it to the maitre d' or the head guy and let them taste it, right? I'm going to read this to you. The Old Testament law required various kinds of washings. All of those were to demonstrate to the Israelites how deeply sinful and unclean they were and thus how unfit to enter into God's presence. These washings were drudgery, yet the Israelites were to do them in obedience to God's law. By the time legalistic Judaism added even more washings, Judaism was a laborious religion. Jesus took this ceremonial cleansing water and made it into wine. Jesus took that which was a pain and made it into a pleasure. Jesus took that which the Jews would have found unfit to drink, and he made of it the best wine that has ever passed the lips of man. The thing that I love about this is that God can always take our shame and turn it into fame. When the um, Mater D got the wine, it was so delicious. He went to the bridegroom and he said, oh my gosh, most people bring out the best wine and then when everyone's a little bit tipsy, they bring out the cheap wine. You've totally reversed it. You've saved the best for last. And I just want you to know, you guys, I believe that this is a picture of what God wants to do in our lives. He wants to take the old stuff that has been bondage to us and has been rules and regulations and he wants to make that new wine in our lives because he's new wine in our lives he represents new wine and then every single thing that could bring us humiliation bring us embarrassment be a um be something that could um stain our reputation he wants to take that and turn it into fame let me tell you People are talking about that wine for days because it was so delicious. They're like, that's the best wine I've ever had. That's the best party I've ever gone to. That wine was delicious. That's what God wants to do in our lives miraculously, right? If we will let him, if we will partner with him, he will take everything that has been um, a stone around us and turn it into the best we've ever had. 
and we'll be famous to the rest of the people because of what God's done in our lives. I think that's a, a fantastic picture of what God wants to do in our lives if we will participate with him, if we will believe him. It's a sign. It's a sign for how we're going to bring glory to God with what he's going to do with our lives and what he's going to do with our failures. But here's the thing. The thing is, most miracles, not all, but most miracles require our cooperation. You know, I was trying to think of some miracles that require cooperation. I was thinking of, like, the little girl that was raised from the dead. She didn't really, she just laid there, right? She didn't have much to do. I mean, maybe her parents did or something like that. But most miracles that Jesus performed required some kind of response or some kind of, um, I don't want to use the word effort, obedience, participation or obedience, okay? Like the woman with the, with the issue of blood. She had to go do something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, I mean, his sisters had to call for Jesus. I guess Lazarus had to physically get up when he was called to get up, right? In this particular situation, Mary says, do whatever he tells you to do. She says that to the servants. And I think that this is a picture of we get to go to, to God. And we say, God, um, I have a situation, and I need to know if you're going to do something about it. And here's the thing. Mary didn't argue with Jesus. She didn't say, hey, I really want you to do this. This is important to me. Um, this is our family. You need to do this. I know that your time's not come yet, but this is a really big deal. These people could suffer a lot of humiliation. She didn't argue with him. She just presented her need. They're out of wine. Hey, by the way, they're out of wine. And I think that's a picture for us. We get to go to God and say, hey, by the way, I'm out of money. I'm out of money today. If you care to do something about it, I'm out of money. Just by the way, you know? And then she waited to see what would happen. And she told people, just obey him. Just do whatever he tells you to do. It might be crazy, but just obey him. And so, like I said, they had to use these ceremonial, unclean vessels for something to drink out of. I'm sure that kind of went against the grain for them, right? And here's the thing, you guys. We don't really know when the miracle happened. We don't know, did the miracle happen when they filled it with water? Or did the miracle happen when they took the water out? Or did the, did the water turn to wine when the maitre d' drank it? Like, when did the miracle happen? And I, I think that's a really good question. Because sometimes we want to have an immediate miracle, right? We want to have magic words, wave your hands over something, shazam, the miracle happens. Right? Am I right? I think the lesson to be learned here is that we have to participate with God in a place of obedience, whether we understand it or not, and whether it's in our comfort zone or not. We were kind of talking about comfort zone. I think God does more out of our comfort zone than he'll do in our comfort zone, to be honest with you, because he's always trying to show who he is to us, and it's always more than we can ever really get a hold of, and we need to experience on a firsthand level what trust brings, what faith brings. He's trying to grow our faith and our trust. And if he's going to do that, sometimes he's going to ask us to do things that don't make sense to us. And I think this is an example where these 
workers had to do something that made no sense to them whatsoever. And it was a process. The miracle was a process. It did not happen right away. It happened maybe when they filled it with water. I don't know. When they dipped it, it could have still been water. When he drank it, it could have still been water. But it was wine by the time it got down to his gullet because he loved it. And I think we have to remember to participate with God even when we don't see the next step. I was talking to Ben, and we were talking about how do you hear God? Like, how do you hear God? How do we know what God's will is? And I said, you know, sometimes for me it's simply just an impression to do the next thing. I don't always know what the third step is going to be. I just know what the next step is for me. And then the door will open after that. Because God is saying, I want you to trust me even when you can't see the end result. And this is supposed to be a sign to us that the end result is for our fame, not our shame. This is a sign that we get to look and say, oh, he's going to turn the water into wine for me, and then I'm going to be famous, and it's going to be the best wine I ever had. This is our hope. This is our sign. This is our movie, the signs right here, that we get to look back and say, what he's asking me to do is for my good and will bring, we'll bring him glory because our relationship is going to be so strengthened. I think that's a cool picture, you know? The um, forerunner commentary says it this way. Due to its close relationship to the ongoing life of community, in association with grain and oil, wine is also representative of the covenant blessings God promised to Israel for obedience and which he would, with, and which he would withhold for dis- disobedience. Finally, wine also represents joy, celebration, and festivity, expressing the abundant blessings of God. I think the final thing to get out of this is that um, the reason that the wine was at the, at the very end is because Jesus wanted to say, the best is yet to come, and it's going to represent joy. His purpose for us is joy, you know, and after I did that message last week, Chip Valandra um, listened to it on the podcast because, you know, I talked about Chip that time, and he said, I, Paula, I just cried. It was so good, Cause, and he says, I give up God all the glory, and that's what I'm talking about. That attitude of what God has done in his life causes Chip to call out and say, I give you the glory, God, for how you've taken care of me and what you've done. And I believe that what Jesus wants to do is to be the wine in our life that brings us joy. And it's a new wine. It's a wine that's not out of old wineskins and old ways and legalism and works and... Um, there's an identity piece to it, to you guys. Jesus saved this bridegroom's identity with his miracle. God's, Jesus is all about identity and saying, I've got your back when it comes to identity. You don't have to work or perform or worry about what people are going to think because I've got your back when it comes to your identity. Your identity is in me, and I have joy that I want to bring to you. Joy, that's why your name is so awesome, right? Your dad named you Joy. That he named you Joy. <laughs> I just, I think it's so, again, I just think it's so cool that, um, 
this first miracle was a party. This first miracle was a wedding. Because when you look back in Genesis, the first time that we see God interacting with humanity together is to perform a wedding. And then at Jesus' first public ministry, it's at a wedding. It shows you how important weddings are and parties to, to the Lord. It shows you how important um, community is. I love that. I love that Jesus' first miracle was in the context of community and, and saving somebody's face, saving their shame. I love that so much. And so I just want you guys to um, just remember that our purpose is to experience the new wine of the Lord, to experience joy that is overflowing, that was filled to the brim, it says, that our joy is to be overflowing. It's for, it's for a purpose of the fame, our fame and the fame of the Lord, that what he wants to do in our lives is more than we ever tasted before. The best is yet to come. We can hang our hats on it. The best is yet to come. We get to have that new wine. We can have it now. We can have it in eternity. It's ours right now. We're not, we're not just going to drudge through life, you guys. We've got to reach out, cooperate with the Lord when he wants to bring us joy, even when we don't understand it. Obedience. Cooperate with the Lord, and that new wine will be something that will spill out of us. It will be fantastic. And you'll give glory to the Lord because of it. So I just want to go ahead and pray. I want you to get in your little places with each other and pray. I'd love for you to pray about joy and how you can participate with the Lord in joy. Maybe there's some things you need to let go of. Maybe there's some things you need to obey God in that you don't understand that he wants to do in your life to bring you joy and bring you to the next place. I'd like you to maybe ask the Lord that when you're with your partner. Is that okay? I'm going to pray. So, Lord, I just thank you, God, that you have a greater thing for us, Lord, than what, where we're at right now. God, I pray that you would open up our eyes to know how do we participate with that. How do we let go of old things? How do we let go of old identities and old wineskins that no longer work? How do we participate with the new wineskin, the new wine, the new thing that you want to do, Lord? Let us be willing to let go of our comfort zone walk outside of our comfort zone and experience what you've got for us, Lord. I just pray joy over every single person here, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.